you guys are enjoying this TV over here. You may not have seen the 3D glasses on the way in, but you rock 3D glasses, it, it just pops out. It's incredible. So return those on the way out. I'm kidding. But uh, speaking of stopping by the info table, Anthony hit on it. If you're a first-time guest, you filled out an info card, you sent one of those texts, you get one of these on the way out. So whether it's the info card or the text on your phone, show it to them and you'll receive one of these. But also it says in the Bible, ask and you shall receive. And I just wanted to give one of these away. Eileen, who's become a part of the church family here on Facebook, she was like, those mugs are amazing. It's a shame they weren't there when I first visited. So ask and you shall receive. (laughs) Enjoy, enjoy. And then also just Anthony hit on that. Anthony also just gave the worship team some props, and I just want to thank them as well. And Steph really hit on just the presence of God and and what Stephanie Birch wrote in her blog. Another plug. Check that out. But uh, if, you know, you you know that you need to make God's presence a priority, a bigger one than it is, then we want to help you in that. And this week, starting on Tuesday, we're starting a life group at, at my house, our house, the White House, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's 10 minutes away in Chesapeake. But Tuesday nights from 6.30 to 8, we're just getting together to eat together, fellowship together, but then to pray together, to ask God so that we can receive, not just for ourselves, but for the church. There's a Facebook group for it. So if you can't make it, you got a prayer request, just slide it on that page. We'll pray for that as well. But that's just a time of focused prayer as a church. We know that God wants to do great things through us here in this region, but some of it's only going to happen if we get on our knees and seek his face and pray and make his presence a priority. And then lastly, Anthony hit on it shortly too, but I want to hit on it too, is next week we're doing an abbreviated service, five o'clock to six o'clock, and then we're going outside, we're enjoying ourselves, we're going to have inflatables for the kids, a bounce house, we're going to have an inflatable screen where we're going to show Zootopia. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm a little excited. So it's It's not just for us. We're doing that so we can reach the community. Somebody asked me this week, well, should I invite so-and-so? And And I'm like, yeah, yeah. We're doing this so that we can reach the community. We can reach those uh, that would enjoy something like this, a place to come out where their family can hang, eat free pizza, and enjoy themselves. But also we're doing it so you guys can enjoy yourself after a service where you just probably serve faithfully and not worry about whatever crock pot you got going, all that kind of stuff. That's why we're doing pizza. So we're looking to, uh, as a church, donate enough pizza that we can provide for ourselves and then provide for the community. So there is that sign-up sheet out there on the info table where you can sign up for whatever you might need for your family and then whatever else in addition. Steph and I are not eating one of those Godfather pizzas with, was it 24 slices? But we're going to buy one for ourselves and then buy another one for whoever might come. But check out those two sign-up sheets on the way out. That's my, that's all I got there. But uh, there will be games too. We'll figure something out for the adults. There will be games. But speaking of games, and adults and youth. How many of you guys coming up played the game Would You Rather? Anybody? Just me? I miss Nate. I know Nate's hit me with Would You Rathers just randomly all the time, like in the middle of leadership meetings, whenever. But Would You Rather? It's a game of forced choices where there's two options and you've got to choose one. Any of you have like a classic stumper that you would always pull out your back pocket for a Would You Rather? Some of you are laughing because you're like, it's not church appropriate. But, because <laughs> usually it starts out and it's like, Would you rather have the ability to fly or the ability to be invisible? But if you play long enough, you get bored enough, or you're young enough and immature enough, it starts to get into ridiculous stuff. Like, would you rather have a head the size of a tennis ball or of a watermelon for the rest of your life? And you, watermelon, why? Exactly, bigger brain. That's where I was going with that. Would you rather have hiccups for the rest of your life or that feeling like right before you sneeze, but you never get to sneeze for the rest of your life. The sneeze thing? 
I don't know. I feel like sneezing while driving is probably the most dangerous thing in the world. Like, drunk driving is bad. Sneezing while driving, I feel like I'm going to kill somebody. Because right before I sneeze, I'm just, so, I don't know. I'd probably take the hiccups. But lastly, would you rather be in a real-life version of The Walking Dead or a real-life version of Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park? See, I was thinking Walking Dead because at least then what's trying to kill you is moving at, like, three miles per hour. You know, a T-Rex can outrun my car, let alone myself. So, But, hey, they're all good, they're all good answers if you provide a good enough uh, explanation. That's why the game is fun. But, again, usually it just goes downhill after about 10 minutes. You know, would you rather die this way or that way? Would you rather drown or burn? You're like, uh, do I really have to answer? Or would you rather eat this gross thing or this disturbing thing? Like it just goes downhill. But I bring this up because sometimes I think we can play the same game with God. But instead of forcing ourselves into choosing a lesser of two evils, it's choosing a better of two goods. Or we can position one good or one against another, or one truth against another truth of God, causing us to think it's either or. We create false choices and forced decisions. You know the word decide means to kill off the other option. You're choosing one thing and you got to reject the other. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, what are you even talking about? When do we do this with God? If you just look at the New Testament, what Paul had to deal with in his epistles writing to churches, it was like, should we follow up? do we follow Apollos or Paul? Should we uh, stress the law or grace? Jews or Gentiles? Faith or works? And the answer to all of these that Paul worked out was both, right? Apollos, myself, one plants, one waters. God gives the increase. Do both. Follow me or follow Christ. Do both. Follow me as I follow Christ. The answer to all of these questions again and again is both. But where it gets dangerous, and we're definitely not going with this series, is when our answer, our constant answer, our, our, our theme is all of the above or both, where it becomes our go-to answer. You know, all of the above and tolerance has become the theme in our culture, where truth and morality doesn't really have a source, and we kind of sneak in moral absolutes as we can. We smuggle them in, and our feet are firmly planted midair. It's like the parable of the house that's built on sand, where our, our culture as a whole, if there's no truth, there's no morality, it, it's not built on a sure foundation, and we suffer for it. We suffer for it. It's why at the outset of Israel settling into the promised land, Joshua says in Joshua 24, 15, he says, serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. That's why when Israel would later lose its way and Elijah was on the top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, 21, he says, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Choosing God is a choice. Repentance is a choice. It's deciding to follow God where you kill off other options. Why? It's because of the very nature of who God is. You know, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, it says, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there's no darkness in light. We realize that in the natural, but in the spiritual, in the, in the amplified version, speaking of God, it says God is light. And then in brackets, it says he is holy. His message is truthful. He's perfect in righteousness. And in him, there's no darkness at all. 
And again, it says no sin, no wickedness, no imperfection. It's why a choice to follow Christ looks a lot like Romans 13, 12, where it says, so remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. It's a basic truth about light. There's, there's no darkness in light. And if you want to dwell eternity, eternally with God, then it's like Romans 13, throughout life we're taking off those deeds of darkness and striving to become more like Christ every day because there's no darkness in light. You know, Muhammad Ali passed away recently, and I remember when I was younger, I heard his quote where he was talking about how fast he was. And he said that one time in a hotel, he turned the light switch off, and he got in bed before the room was even dark. And I heard that as a little kid. I was like, I'm going to try that. That's cool, right? And I would try that. My bed wasn't too far from the light switch. I'd be like, I'm going to get in bed before it gets dark. And then finally, like my older sister was like, you realize he was just exaggerating, trying to talk about how fast he was. And luckily, she removed that goal that I was never going to achieve. But it's like that. You turn off the switch. You take away the light. It's dark immediately. But if you turn that around, you, turn a, you flip on a light switch in a dark room, it's light immediately. There's no battle between light and darkness. There's no war that's waged where you got to wait to see if the light will overcome the darkness. No, the light overcomes the darkness. And maybe you've got dark places in your life tonight or habits you're trying to overcome or something you're trying to overcome in your life that just seems like a pit or a valley or a dark place. Well, I got good news. Light overcomes darkness. On the cross, Jesus overcame sin for us and then extends grace to us. But there's another basic truth about light, and that's that light is complex. You can study light a long time. I know that because I did this week preparing for this sermon. But like following Christ, it has its complexities. And light's complexities, I believe, can speak to life's complexities. Anybody ever have one of those prisms as a kid, the, the crystal? They're, it's not a triangle. It's five-sided. But I'm going I'm to buy one. I'm going to bring it next week just so I can bring it. Anybody have one? Know what I'm talking about? You just set it up in a windowsill and kind of spin it in rainbows. We'll go around the room. That was cool to me as a kid. That would occupy me for minutes. Let's be serious. But it would occupy me for a little bit. But light goes through the, the air. It hits the glass, and then it goes out the glass and into the air. And as it's refracted, it bends in different wavelengths, bend at different uh, angles. So that's where you get the rainbow from the light. It's probably the worst you'll ever hear it described because I, I was an art and English major. But uh, as an art major, I can tell you that, this, that when you take all those colors, put it on a color wheel, you get what are called complementary colors. They're different spots on the spectrum. They're opposite sides of the color wheel. But when two complementary colors, scientifically, come together at full intensity, they create white light. And similarly, again, God is light. There's no darkness in him. But in him, there are often characteristics that together, not separate, show us the fullness of who he is. And his beauty is in the balance of complementary truths. And just like a favorite color, you know, sometimes we can have our, our favorite aspect of God, favorite truth. Actually, I just remembered, I got this. It's not exactly what it looks like, but there's the color wheel on the right. And again, sometimes you might have a favorite color. I think I've had about four different favorite colors over the course of my life. It just changes like my palate does for different foods. But spiritually, we might say, well, I'm more of a, a prayer than a doer. I like to get in my prayer closet. And somebody else might say, like, I'm more of a doer than a prayer. I'm like, what's, what's the good praying if I can just go out and do it? Well, why not both, right? What do they say? Pray like it depends on God. Work as if it depends on you. It's not either or based on who we are. It's both and based on what glorifies God. And when we make black and white issues out of complementary truths, making what's complementary contradictory, 
we fail to glorify God as we should. The big idea that we're going to work through this summer in so many different pairings is don't put an or where God has put an and. Don't put an or where God has put an and. Don't try to create a contradiction where God has shown in the Bible through your life that he's big enough for both. It's a booby trap we so often walk into in our culture, even in church, because we're drawn to division. We're drawn to taking sides on issues. I swear every time I log on to Facebook, there's a new issue where you got to take a side, draw the line in the sand, and take your stand. And if I'm honest, it's something that, that pastors walk into all the time. You ever heard a leader or a pastor say, it's not about A, it's about B. It's not about this, it's about that. It's not about pursuing this, it's about pursuing that. It's not about focusing on this, it's about focusing on that. Happens often, and I would like to say I've never done it, but I have. (laughs) I remember I was on a roll like a few years ago. I think I was on Facebook just posting ideas about, it's, it's not about this, it's about that. And finally, Wayne Thomason, right, my buddy, shoots me an email, and I don't remember what my post said. I don't remember what the email said, but I'm so glad I got people in my life who are like the Bereans and Acts who will be like, he just said that, but that doesn't line up. And he shot me an email. I don't remember what it said. I don't remember what my post said. But I remember I had walked into this trap of painting and statements as or statements, either or statements, this fallacy of the false choice. And again, it's a a booby trap we can walk into. So we've said a, a million times since our launch that a faith that is solely inward focused is out of focus. And that word solely there is there because of Wayne. Because <laughs> your faith should be inward focused. You should be looking at your life and seeing where you need to grow, where, what areas you need to add virtue to, where you need to take something out. Or maybe you've got an idol that's tried to cre- creep onto the throne. You should always be looking at your life with an inward focus thinking, where's God calling me to grow? But there should also be an outward focus where God transforms you so that you can go out and share what he's done in your life because he wants to do that in the people around you. So that's why we say a faith that is solely inward focused is out of focus. But if you're at a, say our church was all about that inward focus, you might hear me say it's not about the quantity of disciples, it's about the quality of disciples. But why not both? You know, God wants all to be saved, none to perish. How about a little quality with your quantity? But I've heard people say that. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, emphasizing the outward focus. I've heard people say it's not about gathering, it's about going. But what, about, what about both? Come together, cast vision together, inspire each other, and then go out together. And what I've heard again and again as a pastor that's intended as encouragement, and I always know it is, but people say it's not about numbers, it's about faithfulness. How about both? How about faithfulness that leads to fruitfulness and just trusting that God's going to do what we can't? Because if If you look at these statements, it doesn't matter what they say after the first half. The first half is dumb. It's not about the quantity of disciples. Pause, right? (laughs) It's not about gathering. It's not about numbers. All those statements are dumb, no matter what you say afterwards. So it's a trap that we can't walk into. And and it's important, and we're spending an entire summer on it, because when we paint truths that are complementary as contradictory, we'll limit God. Or as it says on the screen, when we paint complementary truths as contradictory, we can limit God what he wants to do in us, and then what he wants to do through us. And God's beauty is in the full spectrum of his character and the full spectrum of our call. You know, when we live in the light, as 1 John talks about, it's often with complementary truths in each hand. Stewardship and generosity. A perspective of being set apart, but then a realization that we're sent. Faith and works. Humility, but godly ambition. 
what else? A perspective of, of trusting God's providence and yet petitioning him in prayer. A balanced life that lives in the light, as 1 John talks about, will have a full spectrum faith that lays hold of both. It's like when two complementary colors come together at full intensity to create white light. We live in the light when we walk out both of these truths to the fullest, not one or the other. And this is where we're going to spend our summer, investing in a full spectrum faith that realizes what some pain is contradictory is often complementary and ultimately empowering for us, for our church, and will have an effect, a greater effect on the world around us. But tonight, to set the pattern to be the appetizer, as I've already eaten up a lot of time, we'll look at perhaps the most basic pair of truths we'll hit on all summer. One you've maybe heard related or, or tied together before, where sometimes we'll slap the tyranny of or where God's already put an and, and, and that's truth or grace, or truth and grace. Because the question is, are we called to champion truth or to show grace? Because the world needs truth. <laughs> And the world needs grace. And you'll see people working from each side. I mean, all you got to do is log on to anywhere that has a, a comment section, right? Especially under like a Christian artist or a movie. And you'll see both sides just coming at each other. In one corner, you've got the culture warrior. Because the champion truth, you got to win a couple fights, right? This person engages in culture to condemn it, to fight against some of the lies that are advancing in our culture. And they fight, but often with a focus on flesh and blood, often to have conversation, but to show the other person why they're wrong, how they're wrong, and a surefire way to not be heard is to be combative, to poke and prod emotion. As soon as you get somebody's emotions up, they're not going to hear you. <laughs> so the culture warrior quickly becomes offensive, confusing, and ultimately unpersuasive. But then in the other corner, you got the person that's all about grace, all about that grace, no treble, no, no truth, all about that grace, no truth. Where am I? It's the response to the war mentality. <laughs> we extend grace, but don't change anything because we aren't calling people to come to grips with the truth. We've taken out any call to repentance and salvation. We've eliminated the good news. And it seems loving until you realize that after your conversation, they're exactly as far from God as they were before because you haven't called them to change. But what if instead of the, the champion of truth and the dispenser of grace throwing hands, they realize that we're supposed to have truth and grace in each hand, to go in hand in hand, because neither are wrong. Our culture clearly needs truth. <laughs> we live in a world where preference and choice have pushed truth and morality to the side. Again, tolerance has become a welcomer of all opinions, all experience is equally valid. The gate is wide, the road is wide, it seems loving, it seems welcoming, but then you realize truth itself is narrow. Truth is exclusive. Truth will eliminate the other options. You will have to decide truth. And then Jesus himself talking about salvation, the life we're called to, says it's going to be a narrow gate. It's going to be a narrow road. Ravi Zacharias, who's way smarter than me, I would say he's probably as smart as most of us combined. But he puts it this way. Truth cannot be sacrificed at the altar of pretended tolerance. Real tolerance is deference to all ideas. That's D-E-F-E-R-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Deference to all ideas, not indifference to the truth. Again, that last sentence, real tolerance is deference to all ideas, but not indifference to the truth. You know, Jesus in his own conversation with Pontius Pilate based his whole mission and his whole identity on the authority of truth. It's here in John 18, 37. He says, you are right in saying I'm a king. 
In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Jesus came to the world, took on flesh, because we needed the truth. But then you also look at our culture. Our culture clearly needs grace, because you live with a a loose grip on morality. It's like driving on a windy highway with a loose grip on the wheel. You're going to get hurt, and hurt people hurt people. Broken people break people, and a broken culture can just lead to more brokenness. And our culture needs healing, but it also needs the grace that overcomes the guilt and shame of being broken. Again, to quote somebody, Philip Yancey once said, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there, and I returned because I found grace nowhere else. But you shouldn't just be, grace shouldn't just be found in doses in church. It should define our stance. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, based, again, his mission and identity on the extension, not of judgment, but of grace. John 3, 16, we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever perish would, would not perish. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You're like, you just screwed up John 3, 16. Who are you? John 3, 17 goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So you've got Jesus defining his mission on truth and defining his mission on grace. Is he contradicting himself? Or is he just showing the beauty in his complimentary calling and the the beauty in our life and in our mission as we follow him? You know, in John chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, it says, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what did that look like in action for him? What should that look like in action for us? Well, for Jesus, it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners. That's the truth of the matter. But he died for us. That's the grace. We see truth and grace in Jesus' mission. So how does this inform our faith? How does this inform how I'm going to live next week, next month, or the next years? Well, perfect love, the love we're called to, love demonstrated as God demonstrated it, It has love and truth in hand, truth and grace. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. You know, Tim Keller, again, another smart man. I like to quote people that are smarter than me. I find a lot of material. Tim Keller says the following. He says, truth without grace is not really truth. Grace without truth is not really grace. Any religion or philosophy of life that de-emphasizes or loses one or the other of these truths, falls into legalism or into license. Either way, the joy and power and release of the gospel are stolen by one thief or the other. So a church that's dispensing grace needs to also have truth in the other hand and complement it with truth because, again, grace without truth, it might make people feel better, but it's not going to bring them to Christ. Like Tim Keller said, you can so easily fall into license where there's one side of the coin of grace where it covers our sin, but there's not the other side where we're called out from it. A call to genuine repentance. Grace doesn't just cover sin. It calls us out from sin. You see Jesus say again and again, go and, go and sin no more. The beauty of the cross is that we can stand before it and openly admit I'm broken. I'm a sinner in need of grace. Come as you are. But you know the beauty of that grace is that it doesn't leave us broken. 
See, God doesn't just accept us as we are. He accepts us in spite of who we are, broken, in sin, and he loves us too much to leave us how he finds us. Do we as the church share that love, or do we tell people that the truth that's transformational is optional? You know, but a church that lays hold of truth needs to have grace in the other hand. It was Mark Twain that said uh, he knew some people that were good in the worst sense of the word. <laughs> good in the worst sense of the word. He probably wasn't a, a, a big admirer of, of the people on the megaphone or, or picketers with sign that spew hate. You know, you ask what a, a Christian evangelical looks like these days, and you'll probably get an answer that's all political stances, where they've drawn the line in the sand and what side they stand on. But it's funny, if you look at Jesus, he didn't come on a political platform. He came on a platform of truth and grace. And you see that this mixture was like magnetic with some of the the screwiest sinners of his day. And yet you look now at the church, we've almost got a reverse magnetism. where This is the place where somebody would feel the least welcome if they were in sin. And I would say it's because we so often let go of grace. You know, Peter says in his epistle to be faithful dispensers of the magnificently varied grace of God. Faithful dispensers of the magnificently varied grace of God. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a dispenser, but last night I was at Starbucks studying these notes, studying my sermon, and there's windows that just look out on the drive-thru so you're not distracted by who walks in, but I can just remember I had my headphones on and my head just turned and like almost snapped. And I didn't even have to think about it because somebody walked in that had uh, might have been way more than one pump of perfume on, right? And you know how that can just change the atmosphere of a room like that. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, right? You can get in an elevator after somebody had perfume on in there and you can't breathe. But grace should enrich the atmosphere. You know, I, I had an, another time recently where somebody was dispensing through a, a sprayer, and I, that was at North Riverside Baptist Church. One morning I was in the pew reading and praying, and in walks a an exterminator. They have him come through every now and again. And I know this stuff's like not supposed to smell. So I don't know if he just had some stanky cologne on. But after he passed, I was like, I can't stay here. I got to go up to my office to read it. It literally cast me from that space. And you know, so often, I think we as a church can go about dispensing truth the wrong way. As a moral exterminator, more concerned with puffing pesticide than perfume. Extending the aroma of guilt and shame over the aroma of grace. But if you read the Bible, you realize that God doesn't confront you with truth to shame you. He confronts you with truth to change you. And grace is the agent of change. Again, grace doesn't just cover sin. It calls you out. And grace empowers you to step out. Again, you look at Jesus. He said, for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. But he also says, or it says, he says of his mission that God didn't send him to condemn the world but to save it. He tells you the truth to save you and change you. And based on this pattern, Paul paints the goal for us as we lay hold of truth in one hand and grace in the other. In Ephesians 4.15, he says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Because you look at Christ, again, he came with grace and truth. He brought truth, but it wasn't to condemn us. It was to change us, to show us the path to grace. Again, truth without grace can just come off harsh, giving information in a way that will never truly be heard or bear fruit. But grace without truth, I believe it was Tim Keller that said, grace without truth is sentimentality. It's affirmation in a way that only maintains brokenness. 
Again, tonight, maybe we started with the most basic pairing. We'll talk about the entire summer. You might hear this and say, yeah, I've heard people speak on grace and truth, or I've read that verse from John chapter 1 where it talks about how he came with grace and truth. But you know, every day, again, we wake up and it seems like somebody else is drawing a line in the sand and we're drawing one direction or the other. Cries even from within the church about how we need more grace or how we need more truth to solve the puzzle of a broken world around us. And as that invisible line is drawn, making these complementary truths contradictory, we can drift unchecked to one side or the other. Grace at the cost of truth, truth at the cost of grace. And again, we need to have an outward focus, but sometimes it's truth at the cost of grace or grace at the cost of truth with ourselves. Because, you know, if we're 100% transparent, we're all works in progress. I don't know about you, but I I stumbled and fell last week. There are moments where I want to put my foot in my mouth. There are moments where I want to put my fist through a wall, right? There's just moments where we're not perfect. We need grace. We need forgiveness. And when we lean heavily on truth in those moments and don't cling to grace, we can become wrecked by guilt. Say things like, I, I, I can't forgive myself because we're more focused on our flaws than Christ's sacrifice. In those moments where you can't forgive yourself, you're serving a lowercase God, your self-righteousness and yourself, because the true God that matters, capital G God, has already forgiven you and extended grace. We'll never be at peace because we can't measure up to God's holiness if we only hold on to truth and let go of grace. But when we lean into to grace and don't hold firmly to truth, we can get caught in cycles, mountaintops and valleys, peaks and pits, times where we feel strong and then we stumble again. Because we can know that by grace we still have value despite those mistakes, but if we don't hold the truth again, we're never going to deal with that sin issue. We're never going to truly transform until we totally grapple with the truth God calls us to. If you lay hold of grace but let go of truth, you'll never be at peace because you'll never truly change. You'll keep stumbling over the same issues. If I'm honest, in a decade of following Christ, I've fallen on both sides of that. Moments where I didn't hold on to truth enough and I was embracing God's grace or moments where I was clinging to God's truth so tightly that I I couldn't accept his grace. I thought I don't deserve his grace. But, you know, if we could just have the worship team come up, I'll just close with this idea. You'll see the word shalom. It's a Hebrew word that means peace. But it speaks to a peace that comes from a harmony or a rhythm. We see balance and this complementary nature in creation. We see the word shalom multiple times in Genesis when it's talking about creation. And you see the rhythm of the work of day that leads to the rest of night. A week of creating pauses for an established day of recharging. And then finally, the rib of man bringing forth woman to be his helpmate and his complement. Shalom is the peace that comes from the balance that God intends for the world. But that peace was broken. And again, we live in a broken world. But the new covenant rhythm of shalom that Jesus brought is this balance between grace and truth. Among other things we're going to talk about, again, all summer long. But Jesus shows how we don't need either or. Jesus came with grace and truth. So if we could stand as we get ready to go back into worship. You know, maybe maybe you're in the party that holds tight to truth but you've had a loose grip on grace. So you felt down, you felt far from God. Again, you struggle with the thoughts that I have at times where I'm not good enough. Felt like a disappointment. 
because you're so clinging so tightly to God's truth. You love God's truth. That's a great thing, but God also wants us to realize his grace never runs out, never runs dry. Maybe that's you tonight, but maybe you're on the other side where you feel trapped. Every time you feel like you're strong, you stumble again. You get up, you start walking, then you stumble again because you've got a tight grip on grace that allows us to get back up, but you haven't laid hold of truth that calls us to transform and, and let those issues remain behind us as we move forward. So tonight, if, if that's you, you feel down because you need to lay hold of grace again, or, or maybe you keep falling down because you need to lay hold of truth again. You know, even now as we're about to go into worship, if that's you, then I want to pray for you. And just, as we go back into worship, just if that's you, you feel down because you need to lay hold of grace again or you keep falling it down because you need to lay hold of truth again. If you just raise your hand where you're at. God, I pray, God, that we would be a people of grace and truth. Not just in dealing with the world because we're never going to have the impact with the world if, if we don't lay hold of both, but God, with ourselves. God, that we would realize that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the cross is we can stand in front of it and say, God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm broken. We don't have to put on a facade. We don't have to pretend to be perfect. Your grace never runs out. But God, I just pray that we would always remember your grace doesn't just cover us. It calls us, calls us to transformation, calls us to grapple with your truth. We're never going to be perfect. But God, in Matthew 5, 48, says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God, we know we're called to that. God, we thank you that through the cross, like it says in Hebrews, those who are being made holy, God, will you see us as perfect through the blood of your son. God, we thank you for the cross. God, help us. God, as we move forward this week, this month, this year, the rest of our lives, God, to walk with grace in one hand and truth in the other. Grace for ourselves, grace for the world. Truth for ourselves, truth for the world. May your Holy Spirit continually remind us. May prayer and worship continually remind us. The time in your work continually remind us that you came full of grace and truth. And we thank you that you did, Lord Jesus. That while we were still sinners, which is the truth, you died for us, which is the grace. And we worship you now as we go into worship, Lord. We praise you.